Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What is environmental justice? And why is it so important to the climate movement? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've been thinking even more than usual lately about the growing American problem with racism. Not actual racism, mind you, but the word itself. When I first wrote about today's guest last year, I offered that the word's biggest issue may be that it is singular and not plural. That makes it easier for folks to believe that racism is only one problem with only one solution. Dr. Robert Bullard knows differently. He was born in Alabama in the 40s during Jim Crow, and the Marine veteran and professor has seen racism in many incarnations. Incarnations that go beyond the often violent signifiers we've been taught to easily recognize. A clan hood, segregated buses, a noose, or racial slurs. Racism is also what we can breathe, what we can eat, and what we can drink. Dirty water, lead poisoning, and polluted air. No one had coined the term environmental racism in 1979. That's when Dr. Bullard's wife, attorney Linda McKeever Bullard, brought a lawsuit against Southwestern Waste Management for planning to put a municipal landfill in a Houston neighborhood where 82% of the residents were black. It was the first litigation in United States history charging a corporation with racial discrimination in its environmental practices. That all culminated in a groundbreaking study and thus began a crusade Dr. Bullard continues today as an activist, educator, and researcher at the historically black Texas Southern University and also as a member of the Biden White House's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. The man known by many as the father of environmental justice went to Scotland last month to attend and take part in COP26, the United Nations Conference on Climate Change. I couldn't wait to have Dr. Bullard on the show to talk about how the world sees his domestic struggle against environmental racism as part of our global fight to keep this world habitable for humanity. So first things first, Dr. Bullard, what is environmental justice? It's a term that I feel like people might understand instinctively, but I feel like as the father of environmental justice, I figure it'd be good to have you explain it. Well, environmental justice embraces the principle that all people and communities are entitled to equal protection of our environmental laws, housing, transportation, energy, food and water security, and health laws. Environmental justice is nothing more than, than this whole principle that people have the right to 
a clean, healthy, sustainable environment without regard to race, color, national origin. It's just that simple. Indeed. It's been 30 years since you all convened at the National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about October 27th, 1991 and some of the principles that you all discussed there? Yeah, you know, the, the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit was a historic moment. Dr. Benjamin Chavis, who was the director of the Commission for Racial Justice at the United Church of Christ. Here is a black civil rights organization based in the church a white denomination, mm-hmm. called together a group of us that had been working on different issues around the country and said, the environmental movement mainstream somehow is leaving out, leaving behind, and not addressing our issues, issues of color, uh, indigenous people, poor people, and that we need to plan a conference, a summit for ourselves. And so we planned the summit. It took us a year to plan it. We raised the money, and it was a four-day summit. And the first two days, we said that the first two days of this People of Color Summit must only be people of color. Why? It's because people of color in this United States, people of color, indigenous people, we have suffered the indignities of an oppression of slavery, mm-hmm. of genocide, of imperialism, colonialism. And so African-Americans, Native and indigenous people, Latinos, Hispanics, Asian and Pacific Islanders, In 1991, we didn't know that much about each other. And so we had to get together just ourselves in a room and try to unpack all of that baggage of those isms that basically have created mistrust and misunderstanding. And after we had that very painful but enlightening two days, then we said the next two days, we have to bring everybody in. We got to bring the white folks in because we do not want to be an exclusionary movement. Mm -hmm. And so we brought everybody in. And over those four days, we had meetings, we had sessions, we had seminars, we had trainings. And over that period, we developed those 17 principles of environmental justice. And the overarching theme of the principles is that people most impacted by environmental challenges must speak for themselves and must be in the room when decisions are being made. And that we must develop the kinds of research, the kinds of empowerment tools, so that we can speak for ourselves and not allow others to go to Washington or go wherever and speak for us. Those 17 principles that we developed in October 1991, those principles, when we got to Rio de Janeiro at the Earth Summit, those principles had been translated into at least a dozen languages. And so what we said is that our principles of environmental justice may have been developed in the U.S., but they traveled well. 20 years later in Johannesburg, there were thousands of us from all over the world representing our movement that was not a U.S. movement, but was a global movement. One of these 17 principles that actually drew my eye in some conversations I've had with recently with some friends is Number six, you talk about environmental justice demands the cessation of production of all toxins, hazardous wastes, and radioactive materials. We're thinking about climate change. Okay, this is the beginning of how it addresses the kind of local concerns that people don't necessarily associate with the climate fight. Things like lead paint, things like 
garbage being dumped disproportionately in neighborhoods of color. How have you over the last 30 years gotten people to better recognize that this is part of being an environmentalist as well? Yeah. If you look at uh, principle six, it's talking about the production of dangerous chemicals and waste. If you look at transboundary waste trade, where companies that produce all kinds of chemicals here and the waste, not just U.S. companies, but companies around the world, those waste products generally get shipped to where? They don't get shipped to Europe. They get shipped to developing countries, Africa and Asia. If you talk about the whole issue of production of materials for war, at the beginning of that process, you talk about radioactive waste or uranium being mined in Indian lands and violating sovereignty, poisoning people. And then it's made into bombs, nuclear weapons that are not just here, that you talk about the global threat. That principle involves the threat to humanity, whether it's talking about war or the production of chemicals or the production of um, the kinds of pollution that creates problems. There's another principle that talks about self-determination. That's another principle that if you look at domestically, you can see that we're talking about sovereignty. We're talking about people have the right of self-determination and not somehow being predetermined what you will be, what your community will be, that you deserve not to be dumped on, whether it's poison, pollution, uh, whether it's the greenhouse gases that's creating more flooding and more sea level rise. That self-determination principle may have started out as a domestic kind of principle, but when you blow it up, you're talking international, you're talking treaty rights, you're talking country to country kinds of things. Those principles, as, as they got pushed out, people around the world started to see that those principles were easily translatable and informed the climate principles that came later. Yeah, no, I see it. But, it's sort of like blues influence in rock and roll. I get it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I want to get back to how you got to a point where you were this passionate, even still, about these particular issues. What was your upbringing like? What inspired you to get involved, not just in terms of conserving, you know, conservation, but also, frankly, you know, this more specific fight later on? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Alabama and the issues when I was coming of age was civil rights and justice. And you could see justice in almost every issue, whether it was housing. You grew up in a segregated neighborhood where the streets pavement stops at your neighborhood and you got dirt roads. You don't have sewer lines. You don't have water hookups and you don't have street lights. And you can see that your segregated school Your library is at your school. You can't go to the main library because it's white. You can't go to the swimming pool because it's white. So so seeing the segregation Mm -hmm. of life in the South and not realizing that that later on I would be involved in a study in a lawsuit that would challenge that separateness, understanding that America is segregated and so is pollution. I didn't realize it growing up. I know everything was segregated, including when you're born And even when you die and go to the cemetery, you go to a separate cemetery. But later on, if you look at the work that I was doing, teaching students and teaching another generation to make that connection between where you live and how long you live and what's in your neighborhood can make you healthy and what's in your neighborhood can make you sick and how the good stuff gets somehow parceled 
onto the west side of town and all of the nasty stuff gets gets somehow sent to the east side. Locally unwanted land uses or Lulu's is just another nice way that planners call garbage dumps, landfill incinerators, highways, and other things that the built environment, we call that infrastructure. All infrastructure not create equal. And all of my writings, all of my books, uh, all of my research will use that equity lens to look at uh, most of the things that make communities unhealthy or somehow create less livability and less resilience. Now, that was a discovery that was unintended. I did not start out to do this. It was something that was uh, kind of like accidental environmentalist, if you can think of a term like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I know you were growing up in Elba, Alabama, and actually graduated 64, uh, same year as my dad from high school. And so, first of all, I just want to contextualize that for our listeners who didn't understand maybe that you grew up in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. How did that upbringing then lead to academia? I want to understand exactly why you felt like that was the path to you making the biggest difference. Yeah. In my, all of my readings, I, one of my heroes was W.E.B. Du Bois. He was a kick-ass sociologist and he was an excellent professor and teacher, but also a heck of a political analyst. And so I graduated from college and I knew I always wanted to be a college professor. And my family is I have four siblings. It's five of us. Four out of five are teachers. And I wanted to be a college professor because, you know, I thought it was cool to be a college professor. And so I went to Atlanta University, my master's degree, and then I went to Iowa State University and finished my PhD. And so I wanted to model my career after one of my heroes. As I said before, W.E.B. Du Bois developed the sociology department at Atlanta University. Du Bois did all of his, his real uh, research in Atlanta at Atlanta University, even though he could have gone anywhere, he did it at an HBCU. And so my career has been one modeled after someone who, who would write and work with community groups. Du Bois helped found the NAACP. So he was not just a bookworm and a professor. He was also a political uh, activist. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I am. I like to write. I like to research. I like to work with communities and assist and support. I don't pretend to lead anybody, but if communities come to me and want me to assist and support, if I can, I will assist and support and get other allies and students to assist and support because that's what our movement is built on, uh, empowering local communities to speak for themselves and getting them the tools and training so that they can combat the forces that are arrayed to kill them. Now, poison, you know, they saw, oh, this is... Uh, pollution. This is a toxin. That's a nice way of saying uh, skull and crossbone. That's to kill you. And let's not, you know, fancy it up and put a ribbon around it. I environmental challenges that many of our communities face, including climate challenges that are made worse by racial redlining that occurred 100 years ago when our communities, black communities, were not provided, you know, flood protection. We're not provided you know, the kinds of trees and green space and landscaping and, and design that in the 2020s, those same areas that were redlined is hotter because there are no trees, green canopy. They're more prone to flooding. They have more pollution and they have more COVID infections, hospitalization and deaths. You, so you talk about what has happened over these years because of systemic racism and planners and policy and financing. That's how 
uh, we have to use our science, use our research, use our data to combat that. If we're just going on strict emotion and we want people to be mad, angry, but we have to have other tools in our toolbox to combat that. And that's how our environmental justice movement has been able to create more individuals that are practitioners that can do this work. And I mean, one of those tools, of course, is the legal system. Yes. And I want to talk about the 1979 lawsuit, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management. Can you tell me a little bit more about what was so important about that lawsuit? Well, Bean was the first lawsuit to challenge environmental racism using civil rights law. And the legal theory behind Bean was that placing landfills, incinerators, garbage dumps in black communities was a form of discrimination because you were denying black people equal protection under the law. And the emphasis was on using civil rights as the tool to say, no, this is illegal and therefore you can't do it. And so I was asked to do the study. Right. And I did the study. But understanding that that lawsuit was filed in 1979 and the case went to court in 1985. The case was lost, but the loss of the case was not the end of the story. Bean was a a woman in Northwood Manor, and the residents in that area came to file that lawsuit. Mm -hmm. She filed a lawsuit. She asked me to, to do a study. The first lawsuit, the first study, the significance of that is that even when you may lose a lawsuit, you gain the knowledge that this is a justice cause and a justice issue and that you pursue the next line of offense, your offense, to start to challenge not just what's in Houston, but what's in other places. And what it meant is that having a solid legal theory and having a solid research methodology could point the direction to other kinds of legal arguments and research. Dumping in Dixie came out of Houston, expanding the Houston case study to the whole South and looking at where landfills, incinerators, petrochemical plants, refineries, you found the same pattern that was found in Houston and then expanding it from the South to the United States and then expanding from the United States to look at globally, which communities, which nations around the world have basically received the worst impacts of our environmental policies globally, industrial policies globally, extraction policies globally, and also climate policies, energy, etc. It's the same pattern. And all of that sprang from Houston, from that one case and that one study springboarding, in my case, 18 books mm-hmm. that connect the dots with transportation or whether it's disaster response or whether it's issues around energy security, food and water security, issues around health, housing. These things connect in a way that we can really see it today. But 40 years ago or 42 years ago, people would laugh at you and say, well, there's no such thing as environmental racism. There's no such thing as environmental injustice. You know, I got nasty letters from publishers, uh. you know, back in 1989 when I had the manuscript. What kind of letters? You know, they would say, no, you can't use that. There's no such thing as that. But eventually... <laughs> so, so you have a new idea and they, they couldn't allow that because they hadn't heard about it before? Yes. Well, it, you know, I was... I'm, here, here you have a black man talking about environmental racism 
and has a book manuscript. Well, there's that too. And, but eventually the book got published in 1990, Dumping in Dixie, and it got adopted as a textbook. You know, it was the only book on environmental justice for two years. And it kind of like took off. You know, you have to understand the arrogance of publishers mm -hmm. and the fact that this book was written in a way that challenged mainstream environmentalism. It challenged the environmental groups in terms of not working on these issues, getting all the damn money, but not dealing with real issues on the ground in many communities. And so it was threatening in a way that it was not my intent. But the idea that here you have some organizations that had been around since the 1890s and had never dealt with these issues and very smart people. But we know very smart people don't know everything. And so it took a while for some of our environmental friends to understand or grasp. At our People of Color Summit, we invited five leaders of environmental groups. Two came. The other three said, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> and, and we've made progress since then. You know, 30 years we've made progress. But there's still a lack of understanding of these issues. Yes, we've made progress over the last three decades towards safer, healthier living conditions. But there are still plenty of communities in America today, right now, that are sad reminders of how far we have yet to go. When we come back from a short break, I'll ask Dr. Bullard about the legacy of a stretch of land running from New Orleans to Baton Rouge that has come to be known, ominously, as Cancer Alley. I mean, some of the things, unfortunately, that bring people to understand what environmental justice is, is unfortunately seeing it play out in the news. And so I'm interested to know, first of all, like, what was the inciting event behind the Bean lawsuit? And how do you see that in context of things we see in the news today, like yeah. Cancer Alley and down in Louisiana, the ProPublica has done reporting on, obviously, what happened in Flint? Funny you should ask. As a matter of fact, EPA Administrator uh, Michael Regan kicked off his Journey to Justice tour of the South. Mm -hmm. And he made his visit to New Orleans and St. James Parish and St. John's Parish and Mossville. These are all Louisiana towns that have tremendous environmental injustices with pollution and chemical plants, refineries, you name it. And then he made his way from Cantor Alley, you know, that stretch from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, down the Mississippi River, and then to uh, Lake Charles, Mossville. Mossville is a town that was founded before Louisiana was a state. And it survived slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and all of the, the things that happened post-Reconstruction. But it could not survive the toxic threat of toxic racism that this community that was founded by former slaves now is being destroyed by a company that got its wealth from apartheid in South Africa that's now setting up shop in that area. So the administrator got a chance to see that. He came to Houston and we brought him on the campus of Texas Southern University where the study was done in 1979 on the Bean case. And then we took him up to Fifth Ward and Cashmere Garden to look at these two communities that have cancer clusters. There's a cancer cluster where a railroad company has contaminated the soil. That, that's one of the neighborhoods that I was dealing with 
uh, in terms of Cashmere Garden with the study back in 1979 mm-hmm. and plotting all the landfills. So we talk about fast and furious or fast forward showing uh, the EPA administrator that the issues that we were dealing with in 1979, we we're dealing with some of the similar issues right here in Houston, Texas in 2021. And then take them to a, the Fifth Ward, the same neighborhood I'm talking about, where they're trying to expand a highway, I-45 expansion right. that will destroy the black and brown community. The same highway that destroyed black community 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I, I wrote a book <laughs> that described it. It's called Highway Robbery. There you go. Transportation Racism, New Roster Equity. And then take them along the Houston Ship Channel. That's a stretch of along the, the bayou where the largest concentration of refineries and petrochemical plants and the people lining the communities, lining the cha- ship channel are mostly Latino and black. So we made progress over these 40 years. But to see and to have the administrator take this tour, this journey to justice, that was historic for us, for our EJ movement, because we never had an in- administrator to take five days off and do this tour to a region of the United States that has a history that gave us the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights movement, but it also birthed our environmental justice movement, the South. So make a long story short, is that our environmental justice challenges are still with us today and that people of color in poor communities still face more of the pain and suffering from lack of government response, lack of government action. And what we said to the administrator, our community leaders said that we want to see Justice 40, the administration's uh, plan to send 40% of the investments, benefits, and funding from moving to a green energy economy to communities of color and disadvantaged communities. And that this infrastructure law that has passed, that good infrastructure needs to go into communities, not a highway that's going to destroy black and brown communities or infrastructure that's going to also create more problems in terms of flooding, et cetera. And so that's our justice lens that we developed, you know, in the People of Color Summit is to be applied to Justice 40 and to infrastructure and to monies and investments that will come to our communities. And we're talking billions. The administration is talking about $555 billion when it comes to climate inequity and justice. Uh, That's billions with a B. And so when we talk about those monies as they roll out, we say that we want to see those dollars flow directly to our cities and counties because our blue cities are going to catch hell trying to get that money. One of the things I'm most interested in is your specific role in driving that kind of change. I know that you wrote last summer for The New York Times an op-ed about the environmental injustices that we see and how things haven't changed. And one of the notes that you made was that President Biden had the opportunity to fill a vacancy on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Now, as we're speaking, right before Thanksgiving, the Senate has just confirmed uh, Willie Phillips as a new member of that commission, the D.C. Public Service Commission chairman. So as a member of that White House counsel, how has that avoided you a particular vantage point to not only see changes being made within the federal government to advance your goals, but also to push those changes yourself? Well, you know, there are 26 members of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. I'm one of those 26. There are three members from Texas. And we have been very clear about what we see this administration 
uh, role is in advancing environmental and climate justice, economic justice, and racial justice. And so when a vacancy comes open, like on the uh, FERC, we'd like to see that filled with individuals who understand environmental justice. That's an opportunity because it means that that agency was a little known agency before, but it has a lot of power. It was flying under the radar. FERC is a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It's like, oh, you're a little agency, but you got a lot of power when it comes to permitting facilities. Right. With regards to that, I'm interested also to how you all have addressed the COVID crisis. I mean, keep in mind, you know, there's this 2017 study from the NAACP and Clean Air Task Force that found that black Americans were 75 percent more likely than average Americans to live in communities that are close to industrial facilities like plant, like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, next to all these plastic factories. They're 38 percent more likely to be exposed to polluted air than white folks here in the United States. So we're talking about all these different factors, health factors that are contributing to the COVID crisis to make our communities more susceptible to it. You've used the term death bomb, you know, including in one of our own Vox videos, talking about how these policies that have disproportionately disadvantaged black communities, pollution and COVID are all coalescing. I'm interested to know from your perspective, how racism, climate change and a lack of environmentalism broadly have essentially intersected to work together. Yeah. Well, you know, if you start mapping all of the underlying conditions that create vulnerability, you can track that and put that in a context and on a map to show that racial redlining in terms of which communities have been targeted for industrial facilities and the level of pollution. Uh, if you talk about the impact of lack of transportation and you talk about the high concentration of uninsured because of the segmentation in the job market, which populations are more likely to be working at uh, low wage jobs with no benefits. You can see that the most vulnerable people in the vulnerable places and that zip code will make them more vulnerable to flooding, uh, more vulnerable to urban heat waves and heat strokes, more vulnerable to asthma and respiratory illnesses. You overlay COVID and COVID is a respiratory virus and that you have all of this pollution. You have all of these conditions that create more underlying health disparities. It's a COVID hotspot. And then you add on top of that land use planning and redlining by businesses. And if you are going to put COVID test sites at grocery stores and at pharmacies that don't exist in our communities, that means test sites are not in our community. Mm -hmm. If you're going to require or assume in order to get to a test site for COVID or a COVID vaccination center that you need a car, a disproportionate share of black people don't have cars. About a third in many places don't have cars. So that means you're locking out. And there are maps showing that African-Americans have to travel longer distances to get to a grocery store, longer distance to get to a COVID test site and to a vaccination center because they were at places generally not thought of as the best places. And so we had to move fast and furious and protest and advocate for test sites to be at schools, at churches, community centers, etc. So 
what this means is that segregation, racial segregation, has been a, a huge footprint and overlay when it comes to having access to the good things and access to the bad things. And as it turns out, studies now showing that African-Americans and Latinos breathe dirtier air, 63% more dirty air than they cause, whereas whites breathe 17% less than they cause because of their consumption. So that transfer of benefits to whites and negative externalities to blacks and other people of color, that's real. That's real. Mm -hmm. So it means that if we are to address and redress the health disparities, and you can go by zip code or census tract, and we can show what's in a neighborhood, a zip code is the best predictor of health and well-being. Zip code is more powerful a predictor than your genetic code. And what's in there can make you healthy or not healthy. And that's where we talk about making sure that infrastructure dollars and build back better dollars, soft infrastructure and hard infrastructure, schools, that's a soft infrastructure. With COVID, many of our schools in our neighborhoods don't have the infrastructure for spacing. They don't have the infrastructure for ventilation. The HVAC systems are deficient. And so we're talking about sending kids back into these schools where you don't have the right kinds of of physical space and the right kinds of environment in terms of air to breathe, et cetera. So that's infrastructure. And if you look at the 17 categories of infrastructure that the American Society of Civil Engineers rated, they rated U.S. infrastructure getting a C minus. But if you look at those D minus grades, uh, D minus is, is failing. Many of those D minus infrastructure are located in communities of color. You talk about parks, schools, wastewater, water treatment. You talk about all those things that we know are deficient in our communities. That's where the Justice 40 monies should go in terms of addressing water. Not just Flint, but in Jackson, Mississippi right now where, where there's lots of lead in the water at the same level or worse than what was in Flint. Now we talk about that right now. The administrator went to Jackson last week and saw with his own eyes. Clean up of these dirty polluting sites that communities have been living on for years and no action has been taken, like the one up in uh, Cashmere Garden in Houston. This is the kind of awareness and level of urgency that we need policies that are non-discriminatory, that are targeted to those areas that have been neglected, and we need those investments, those benefits sent to those places so that real people can get real solutions. I do want to ask, how central of a role do HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, play in this fight? Uh, from your standpoint there at Texas Southern, I'm just interested to know how you have seen that fight evolve on those kinds of campuses. HBCUs have always punched above their weight, and they've always made a, a major mark in every social movement in this country that has been successful when it comes to black people and fighting for justice. You talk about HBCUs and SNCC and the civil rights movement, peace and justice, anti-war, women's movement, environmental justice movement is no different. It's not by accident that the first studies that came out of universities came out of our HBCUs. The first centers, environmental justice centers at universities, all six of them, the first startups were at HBCUs. A lot of us left our cushy jobs at 
uh, predominantly white institution and came back to our HBCUs to start these centers. And that's an important point that we continue that legacy. And again, that legacy in terms of the the spirit of Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Du Bois still lives in terms of the work that we are doing at our HBCUs. And our HBCU Climate Change Consortium, for example, we started with five schools in the Gulf Coast. We're now up to three dozen schools. At the Paris Summit, COP21 took 50 black students from 16 universities, HBCUs, to Paris. That's the first time that we had that presence of young people, of black students, of black people. That was the first summit. And from that summit on, we've had a good contingency of young African-American students and young people. We want our young people to have interaction with young people from other parts of the world, and especially the African diaspora. We want our young people to make those connections and take that memory and take that interaction with them in their careers. Fascinating that you say that because I'm intrigued to know how do you feel like that representation has been within the Biden administration? I know that, you know, one of the things that you and I spoke about last year when I interviewed you for Rolling Stone uh, were your concerns about the Biden environmental plan. And you said, if I may quote you here, that your concern was that we don't end up with climate gentrification. Um, can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, what, what I meant was that in many instances, when we look at progressive plans and proposals that talk about justice, somehow they go to the usual suspects. I'm not going to call any names because I've got friends at Harvard and Yale and Michigan and Berkeley. I've got <laughs> friends at all these places. But at the same time, overlook our HBCUs and the history and the legacy and the importance of our HBCUs in driving this whole movement. And so I was a bit concerned, but I'm, you know, my thing is we push and we are not afraid to call it out. The Biden administration has publicly announced a plan to provide 40% of federal investment in climate and clean energy to disadvantaged communities. It's called the Justice 40 Initiative. And after one last short break, I'll ask Dr. Bullard, should we be optimistic or not? mentioned Justice 40, meaning President Biden's commitment to send 40 percent of his administration's climate, clean energy investments and direct them towards disadvantaged communities, particularly communities of color. How optimistic are you that, A, those communities are going to see the funds that have been promised, but also that those funds are going to be used in the most productive way? Well, what we have said, those of us who have worked on these issues on the WeJack. And those of us who have received private foundation funds, for example, our Bullet Center at Texas Southern received $4 million from the Bezos Earth Fund to work on that very issue of trying to make sure that our organizations, our community organizations and NGOs in those, quote, disadvantaged communities, our environmental justice communities, are ready to work with the local governments to make sure that resources are targeted. In other words, 
There are projects, priority programs within the federal government, and there are programs that can be put in place at the city and county level that can go after those funds. And so what we are working to do is to harmonize and synchronize our community groups with their priorities, with our local officials to say that these are prime priority projects that would be at the top of the list for our communities to receive that money mm-hmm. and not just money's going to the state and then the state would decide where the money to go and most likely not go to the priorities that, that have been developed by uh, local community uh, organizations, neighborhood associations, homeowner associations, working with the city and the county to come up with those lists. And we will be monitoring those spendings very closely and that we will be working with these communities across. The communities that EPA Administrator Regan visited, those are prime examples of priority areas that could qualify for those monies right now. So so when we talk about servicing those real needs right. and making those priorities at those local levels and getting the local governments by in our mayor, Sylvester Turner, our county commissioners in Houston, Harris County, they are on board of saying, no, we're coming up with priorities right now. We're not waiting for a screening tool. We'll, we'll have the screening tool. They will work with that. But the best screening tool is eyeballing and knowing the community. Yeah. And you walk those communities and you can come up with a very sophisticated tool, a GIS map. The map will only basically codify, verify what's happening on the ground. But when you talk to communities in terms of what their needs are, whether it's flooding, parks and green space, tree planting, or dealing with urban heat islands, or it's dealing with transportation, or whether it's dealing with highways, stopping a highway that's going to destroy your community. Oh, yeah, we got priorities right now, and we will be working. Our center at Texas Southern University will be working directly with communities to make sure that their lists, their priority lists, get into the shovel-ready state and, and not at the end of the queue like what happened with our small minority-owned business, black and brown-owned businesses got in the back of the line and got uh, 90% of them got rejected. We are not going to wait and stand idle while something like that happened with these billions rolling out. No, we're ready to rock and roll on this. Amen. And, and, and as well, they should. I mean, I think folks generally misunderstand or underestimate just how much folks in these communities care about environmental justice or mitigating climate change. I remember this National Academy of Sciences study from a few years back, and it talked about how Americans misunderstand the concern about the environment. And frankly, you know, we see the faces of the climate change movement are largely white. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's so valuable that you are so visible. The actual reported concern is actually much higher than the public perception of that concern. We don't see enough black folks being upset about climate change and the environment and out here recycling as much as they actually are. And that's <laughs> that I think is one of the biggest reasons why I think your work is so important. Yeah. You know, the, the face of climate change for a long time was a polar bear, you know, a thousand miles away. And what we said, yes, we are concerned about polar bears and melting ice, the glaciers. Yes, we are very much concerned about that, but we're also concerned about having another iconic figure, a child, a child of color that can't breathe because of asthma and respiratory illnesses. And people of color, black people on rooftops uh, where their homes are flooded and floating down a street that looks like a river. When you talk about on the ground 
and who's concerned, mm-hmm. and you look at those polls that come out year after year after year, black people and Latinos poll numbers in terms of who's concerned always poll higher than the general population. So it's because we are on the front line of all of this. When you talk about who's concerned about pollution and environmental whatever, you know, that was this misconception decades ago that black people are not concerned about the environment. There are no environmental groups. And I set out to dispel that myth in 1990, just before the summit, I was putting together a people of color directory. We had the summit. And then after the summit in 92, I published the people of color groups directory. That first directory had 300 people of color groups. We did a 94 edition. There was a thousand. This is the groups that we could find working on all kinds of issues. And so this whole notion that just because we don't make the headlines or we're not on all the media attention, et cetera, only when there's just such a horrific tragedy that we make the news. But the day-to-day stories, the media very seldom will cover our issues. But it doesn't mean that we are not grinding out the work. It doesn't mean that we were not making our mark and we do it quietly. In some cases, we have to yell and scream. Dr. Robert Bullard, Texas Southern University. I'm really, really honored to uh, have had this conversation. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone who you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And come back next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Vox Conversations.